Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. We've all seen Clapboard Jungle. Yeah. And now I don't know what to ask you. So uh, normally we ask, (laughs) normally we ask, no, you wanted to be in the film industry. When did it start? I guess if you saw Clapboard Jungle, all this stuff's going to be a retread, but uh, I've just kind of been interested in film from a really long, a really, really young age. Uh, mm-hmm. But mostly, um, you know, when I was an early teenager and stuff like that. I always tell the, the stupid anecdote and, and it's true, but, you know, I first wanted to be a criminologist when I was really young, which is a weird thing for an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to be a paleontologist because I was really into dinosaurs like most kids. And then I, I saw Silence of the Lambs and Jurassic Park and Copycat and all this stuff in my early teens. And I was like, uh, why don't I just make movies? That seems like a way to be able to, whenever I have a, an idea I really like, I can just explore that world instead of you know, committing my life to uh, you know, 15 years of schooling or whatever to follow serial killers around or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> so I... Uh, you know, I just, I, I gradually, I loved movies. So, um, and my dad, I was sick a lot as a kid. So my dad, when I would be home sick, would rent behind my mom's back, I guess, would rent like R-rated movies. And that's how I saw like, you know, Aliens and uh, the Predator movies and Dario Argento's Phenomenon, although it's called Creepers on VHS and all this stuff that really fucked me up probably. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, I guess I got to thank my dad for for really getting me into horror and and that side of things. And um, and from there, it was just it was I couldn't look back. You know, I started making um, little mini documentaries and and cut together videos with two VCRs for class projects and uh, started shooting you know short films at home where I would like run a garden hose air pressure squib sprayer that I built. Uh, you know, out of a, like a garden pump and, and like, you know, sh- shoot my sis, my family and my friends with like rifles and stuff and have like blood explosions and shit like that. Um, there was one short we made when I was a little kid uh, where I, I had the same air pressure sprayer and the whole point was to try and like blow the back of someone's head off against our that concrete wall in the, in the in this wood room in the basement and we, it kept misfiring so I'd have to move to a new patch of concrete and it was porous concrete. <laughs> So even with painting, we couldn't get rid of the blood stain. So I, I just imagine the next buyer of the house after we moved out going to the woodroom and going, what the fuck happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I visited the house since and they just, they put up shelving around the entire room. So I'm, I'm guessing they were in there. But uh, anyway, so yeah, I just, I just loved horror from a young age and really loved making whatever I could. So uh, that was that. You talked about in that documentary your um, writing partner, Kevin Hutchison, yes. that is no longer with us, unfortunately. When did when yeah. did y'all get together? Uh, in my, I guess early twenties after I left uh, film school, after I left Trevis, like I was, I went to York University and I dropped out of there because of a massive strike, uh, TA strike. So I only had six weeks of classes and I was hemorrhaging money. So I went to a, a smaller. Um, one-year program to take post-production and stuff. And when I came out of that, I moved into uh, this little sixplex uh, basement apartment. I was in the one side of the basement and Kevin just happened to be living on the other side of the basement. So we met as neighbors and I, I, it turned out, oh, okay, he's, he's working in uh, prosthetic, prosthetic uh, effects art. So he, at the time, I think I met him, he was working on, it was either the Tuxedo, the Jackie Chan movie where he, he built the little slugs in that movie Oh, uh, the, the, oh, nice. or um or he was working on this thing called it was some christian slater movie i've forgotten the name of from the early 2000s anyway doesn't matter he was he was doing a lot of effects work in toronto so we started getting together and like hanging out and you know shooting the shit and smoking weed and watching movies and building stuff and making things and you know it just sort of you know we, we spent 10 years kind of making stuff and writing scripts and uh we made the, the, a bunch of short films and then we eventually made the collapsed uh together which was my technically my second narrative feature but the first one that had like when i say real budget it was like 40 grand but had more than like pocket lint into it right um, yeah so uh and then you know the collapse came out in uh 2012 through anchor bay and, and lionsgate in the uk and a bunch of companies and then shortly afterwards he uh he was gone. Uh, that was pretty much a couple months at, after that. So yeah, that would have been 2012. Um, and then I've worked both with uh, Serena Whitney, my a new writing partner since mm-hmm. uh, for a time and I work on my own and, um, and you know, it's, it's, yeah, I miss him. He's, it's been just over 10 years now. Your genre is horror, but your documentaries are very good. What was I the inspiration it. for 
uh, Clapboard Jungle? A lot of my docs, uh, my documentaries. So, so I made three feature documentaries so far. Uh, I'm working on my fourth. Mm. But um, the the whole reason I do documentaries is because coming from where I come from and without any outside financing, the only way I could fi I figured I can get into feature filmmaking early on was doing documentaries because it was something I could build gradually over time with whatever money I happen to have in my pocket at, that, at a given time. You know, I, I spend a little bit of money on some gear so that I, I have it and I don't need to rent it. And then I, I'm able to just like, okay, well, this week I can afford to do this. So I'll go out and shoot this segment or I'll do this or whatever it happens to be. And you can, it, the way I, I make the documentaries uh, is, is all out of my own pockets uh, and it, through the production phase. So it's like, um, just bit piecemeal, bit by bit by bit. I don't need to raise money first. Right. So it's, okay. it was kind of like out of necessity. It would be a way, it, it was a way for me to be able to make feature films that I could sell to the market that would get some kind of notoriety. But I do really like the documentary format a lot. Uh, it's just thematically, uh, the three docs I've done are all kind of built around people aspiring to dreams and like learning their way in the world and stuff like that. You know, the first one's called Working Class Rockstar, and it's about touring musicians that, you know, even though people pay mo big money to see them at shows and stuff, they're still going home off tour and like, you know, working Wendy's or whatever else it happens to be. It was sort of like meant to be at the time when I first started shooting in 2004, like an expose of this is the real way that the record industry works. Uh, so I went and got a bunch of interviews. And then by the time it came out in 2008, I mean, it was obvious at that point. So I, it, it's not like it. It, it was rough around the anyway the long story short is um gradually i got to that point so when it came to clapboard jungle i just finished another documentary called skull world which came out in 2013 i started shooting it in 2008 or 2009 so okay. i was i was trying to figure out a new uh doc i could do a, a new idea i could do the same sort of way on on the side and i started thinking well you know i'm i'm starting to go to film markets now i'm starting to, i'm already going to these places I, I, through the behind the scenes uh, special features work I, I was doing for some companies. I was working with Anchor Bay and Shout Factory and a few other companies doing behind the scenes stuff. I've got access to people. I've met people throughout my life and my travels. Like I'd known Paul Schrader since like 2006 or something. I, I had access to some of these people. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, I mean, that's a good, it's a good angle. It's something I could gradually do on my own. And it's, since I'm living my life anyway, and I'd be sort of turning the camera on myself uh, through part of it, although that idea didn't hit right away. That was that was like I was like, oh, okay. Well, I need a human story, something to emotionally hang the story on. I can't. I just don't want talking heads. That generally tends to bore me with documentaries. It's not that they're bad necessarily, but they feel more like special features when you don't have that human story in it. It feels more like something you watch while you're riding the elliptical. And I wanted something that actually grabbed people. And I figured it's going to cost me a ton of money and draw away from all the other work I'm doing if I follow someone else. Uh, and although I'll probably be criticized for some sort of like egotistical reasons for doing this, the, the practicality of making the movie and, and just what I was already doing, I went, well, I might as well turn the camera on myself and try and be as honest as possible. But, um, you know, I, I knew right from the start, okay, well, there are definitely some people who aren't going to see it that way. They're going to see it as like, oh, he's making a big demo reel for himself. And I tried really hard not to make that movie. I wanted to be like warts and all, and just like, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm if I'm going to say something to a camera, I'm not going to sit myself down, set up lights, put on makeup, put on a nice thing, and do like a really professional like reality TV type interview. I'm just going to flip the camera phone around and say something so that it's it's spur of the moment and it's not stagey and all that sort of thing. So yeah, the idea basically came from okay, what can I make right now? I've got X amount of money, not very much through my post post production business but I've got a bit of extra that I can spend. I can't really make a narrative feature on this money. What can I do? Well, okay, I'll, I'll start another documentary and gradually I'll finish it over a period of se uh, several years. And that's how this one got finished. Luckily, the new documentary I'm doing, uh, and part of the reason it's not, you know, it was announced in 2021 or 22, I can't, I think it's 2021. Uh, part of the reason it, it hasn't moved forward a ton is because we've raised like 70% of an actual budget. So I actually get paid up front this time. And the last 30% has been a real pain in the butt. So I, I don't know, I've been doing these documentaries myself for so long and self-financing for so long. I've, I'm kind of resistant to the idea of doing a fourth one that way. So mm -hmm. I'm waiting for the, the actual budget to come together, which, you know, we were close. And then uh, the broadcaster that was at the table didn't get the government finance they were looking for across their entire slate. So they, they didn't finance uh, like 20 projects and we were one of them. So anyway, uh, that's how we got to Clapboard Jungle was, was just, I, I really wanted to 
in a way, give back whatever knowledge I'd learned, but also in a way, use myself because I really didn't at the beginning of shooting that and even now like you're always learning right like half the stuff that's in that documentary and in the series that I've been working on is all outdated because the film industry has completely flipped in the last few years with the the pandemic hitting and driving you know the everything to streaming and and to PVOD and all that sort like the business is so different now with the way the streamers are treating the creatives and, and it's all run by you know venture capital firms and all that it, it, it's it's very different than even when I made that movie a few years ago. So it's, it's like, I wanted to give a bit of that information, but I also wanted, I just wanted a project I could do in, in the, while I was waiting for bigger projects to come together, like things like Life Changer or, you know, Mark of Cain or any of the stuff that we, we sort of got gestating uh, going forward. Anyway, that was a rambling long answer to say, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I created the opportunity as best I could with the money I had available. No, that's really good. And by the way, it doesn't come off as egotistical at all. It was no. very informative and I felt every bit of that pain. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and there was even stuff that's not even in the doc that like under NDAs and stuff, there were certain projects that I was working on during that time while I was shooting that I couldn't even mention that were like incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, but but now looking back, seeing these projects made by other people, I, I've gone, well, okay, so I dodged a bullet. All right, cool, great. <laughs> <laughs> but like big, big, like I, there's three different remakes I've, I've worked on now that I didn't cross the finish line with and somebody else did over the last like 10, 12 years. And I'm not really big on doing remakes, but I still feel the direction I was going in would have been pretty cool and it would have been a good opportunity and they just kind of didn't peter out. Uh, or didn't and uh, and one of those I was working on the whole time I was doing Clapboard Jungle and I couldn't I couldn't talk about it at all so oh, it's, of course. it's weird yeah it was really cool that you finally got because the first time I watched it and the struggle to get Life Changer just going at all mm-hmm. yeah felt all of that and then to find out at the end you did it and then to be able to go buy the movie and watch it telling you that made the movie so much better. Oh, I appreciate that. I was even trying to, I was trying to get some companies to package the two together as like a, like um, Project Greenlight kind of deal. To oh, some yeah. Degree. But uh, yeah, the, that didn't work out, yeah. <laughs> which is fine. It's better this way because then you get the other docs with the Aero Disc. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. The Aero Disc has, and even the Life Changer Blu-ray has like a almost feature length making of doc that's like yeah. more in-depth than just that Life Changer uh production and not everything else but yeah i i, I put as much as i possibly could on that arrow blu-ray <laughs> there's no more space on that disc at all <laughs> 26 hours of if you include all the commentary tracks it'll take you 26 hours to watch everything on that disc. <laughs> wow awesome yeah. how did you work out the deal with uh arrow did they just contact you or like did you have to reach out to them or well i've done a bit of work for arrow in the past but what had happened was uh the film played Bright Fest in 2018, Life Changer played, played Bright Fest in 2018. And I got to meet a lot of the Arrow people in person there at Fright Fest when I went. And um, I, got, I got along with them pretty well. And one thing I've gotten pretty decent at because I met so many people and I've actually you know, broke bread and had drinks with them and all that sort of thing is when I've got a project I'm working on that you know, plays somewhere or does decently in reviews or whatever, I can easily just send an email to that person and be like, Hey, listen, uh, I know you're not going to be able to offer me much of an upfront deal or any sort of thing. I know the way your company operates. Um, I've got friends who are already distributed by you. Would you consider uh, this film under these terms? And I'm able to sort of pitch it in that way. And that's what I did with Arrow was I just directly emailed my one of my contacts there and said, hey, man, you know, this is played this again. He's like, yeah, I saw it at Fright Fest. It did really well. We've already been talking about it internally. so yeah, if if we we can come together on these terms, then absolutely we can do a deal, and uh, that's that's kind of what happened with uh, Clapboard and Arrow is is um, and also obviously it's not a huge seller for them, but there's there's a number of fairly sizable uh, personalities in it enough that their own audience is sort of baked in, and like people who buy yeah. Arrow know know who the interview subjects are, so yeah. it's 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 mutually beneficial, but it, it really is about having realistic expectations when you approach a company like that and not going like, oh yeah, you can have it, but you got to give me a hundred grand up front. And it's mm, like, yeah. yeah, that's not the reality of the business anymore, unfortunately, uh, especially right. with a boutique a company like Arrow. It's, they may put big money into some stuff, but they're putting it in the restoration side. 
into the licensing side of, of like catalog titles that aren't going to get released otherwise in a lot of cases, right? Like, so um, like, I'm not going to speak for them because I don't work, I'm not an employee of theirs. So I, it's not right for me to, but especially for new movies approaching companies like that, it, it's very much about just being realistic that, you know, you'll get some money, but you're not, don't, don't expect the moon from them, but you'll, they'll give you, what they'll give you is a really great release and a really good profile. And like on the Arrow player, for example, you know, they, they put up a bunch of my old short films as part of the deal. They put up Skull World, my previous documentary as part of the deal on their streaming platform. They, they gave me like a Justin McConnell select section and promoted me on social mm -hmm. media and, that. and all that stuff is like, it's, there's a, it's not that exposure is worth anything financially, but it really is worth something in terms of profile. And that helps you get further jobs and people find you and, and notice you and stuff like that. And, um, ultimately that's what you want, right? You want better or bigger work or not, maybe better is the wrong way to phrase it, but you want, you want that next step. You want that next stepping stone. And if nobody sees your work and if nobody's talking about your work, you can make 50 movies and nobody's going to give a shit about 51. That's yeah, true. Absolutely. Dude, like it's a, it's a fucking arrow release. Like I know people that are so nuts about arrow. They'll just put whatever they put out. They'll, they'll just go out and buy it. Like, Oh, it's a new oh, yeah. arrow release. And it like, and the packaging is gorgeous and everything too. Right. So it's like, mm -hmm. so a, a certain collector will just have your movie in their lineup now. And then they, they know your name and everything. Right. So that's fucking yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and especially things like arrow, or vinegar syndrome or screen factory and stuff like that you're not just selling to like uh the people who watch it aren't just like you know everybody it's 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 people with power to watch that stuff you know like what is it tarantino said is his favorite streaming pl platform is arrow it's the only one he watches or stuff like <laughs> that. I'm, I'm sure that was him you know just blowing smoke but the point being is that you know with these particular companies the right people get could see you and and the wrong people, but people who yeah. could really screw your career could also see you and go, well, that sucked. I'm never hiring them. But mm. um, they, you get in front of the right eyes. And 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 I'm not saying the audience and, and fans and everybody else are the wrong eyes. You know that that's all amazing. Like it's it's great to have people uh, like like your stuff. Oh, that's that's not why necessarily why everybody does things. You just have this urge to tell stories and put things out there. But that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. By being on something like Arrow, it, it absolutely legitimizes you to a degree. So I watched um, Broken Mile oh, yeah? this morning. Really? And you okay. and it said it was filmed in one take. What does that mean? So Broken Mile wasn't filmed in one full take. It was it was six six takes that were with five hidden cuts for an okay. eighty-one minute movie. Movie. Uh, there's only a few movies that are called one take movies that actually are one take movies. Okay. Uh, there's, there's, but um, essentially, it's it's presented to look like one single take with no cuts. So, oh, okay. Uh, for, the, for that particular, but still, the longest take in that movie is still 19 minutes, which is uh, ridiculous for. And I, I'm not saying that I, I necessarily was 100% successful in maintaining suspense the entire time or anything like that with that movie. Uh, it was it was very much an experiment for me. It was something where I went, okay, well, I got about ten grand, and I want to make a narrative feature. And I didn't know if Life Changer was going to come together or not. And I was making the documentary, and I went, okay, well, I need something to show for this. Uh, but I, you know, I, I had this idea. Okay, I started walking my own neighborhood and going, okay, I can get from here to here in this amount of time. I was walking with like a stopwatch on my phone kind of thing. And the, here to here, and I was trying. I kind of reverse engineered a script around the idea of like, how could I actually pull off something that, that is one take or looks like one take in and around this area and these locations I have uh, and tell a story that's compelling enough um, as, as both an experiment in form and, and, and a way of like building suspense where there, there is, is this long lingering shot on individual characters, but have some kind of propulsive, like it's not just people sitting in a room for 80 minutes, it's people traveling all over a neighborhood and getting in and out of cars and chasing each other. And, you know, stuff that is complex and hard to pull off. And uh, it, gradually I just wrote, reverse engineered the script into this into this thing I knew I could do. And then I, uh, you know, I rented some gear. I used my, my own gear and I lifted weights for like four or five months so, so that my arm didn't fall off holding up a camera steadily for, you know, 19 minutes at a time, four takes in a row kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, bought a, or 
did I, yeah, I bought a, like a gimbal, which is a, a stabilizer system. It's like a stick you put the camera mounted on the top of it and it's got like the gyros uh, and a motor so that as you're walking, you don't get like shake, you get a, a smooth steady cam kind of deal, but it turns the entire camera rig into like eight or nine pounds or you know 10 pounds or so that you got to hold up for a long, long period of time. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I just went out and made it with uh, uh, some cast that I uh, put together and we shot it in like three days and, uh, you know, doing like a take or two a day uh, or a, a stretch or two a day, multiple takes. I think the 19 minute one, we, we got it on the seventh take or something like that. Mm. But the lo long story short is it's presented when you watch it, it doesn't look like there are any cuts or at least to people who aren't aware of how you trick edits into a long take like you watch a movie like extraction for example right they've got that or extraction two in particular where there's that the, it opens with like a long 20 minute single take insane action scene where they go through like five different locations and there's all this shit happening mm -hmm. but to a trained eye when you're watching it you're like okay well that's a whip pan they hit a cut there all right they went into black there they hit a cut there uh there, there's vfx like melding things together uh i didn't have that kind of budget but or like I had like the catering one day's worth of catering budget of that movie kind of thing to make this one. But the long story short is, um, yeah, it was very much just like I wanted to make a feature film. So I put it into action and I spent a small amount of money and it did pretty well. It's I still get, you know, it's still it's been on Tubi for quite a while, but it's been on, you know, initially it was on all kinds of different platforms and Hulu spent some money and bought it and it did pretty well. Uh, so it, it's, it's paid off in a, in a lot of ways. And in some other ways, it's, you know, it's mixed it's mixed reaction critically and i fully accept that because you know it's it's not for everybody right but, uh but i really did you know I, I enjoyed making it and i don't feel like it was a waste of time it was just like it was it was, it was a challenge i gave to myself and i, I feel like I, I did a decent job of it yeah it was good i missed it i i thought i watched everything and then i found it this morning and watched it, it was pretty it was pretty good actually yeah i appreciate that it's it's it was just like a very like I even reshot. So the opening like seven minutes of it, the first time we shot it, the first three days of shooting, I wasn't happy with that opening bit, bit at all. So four months later, I actually went back and reshot the beginning. And somehow we we like we had to rebuild the all the conditions again entirely. And you'd never know, but you know, make sure that the actor's facial hair was the same, all that sort of thing, because mm -hmm. um, it, it's supposed to be this continuous, you know, eighty-minute block. And right. uh, yeah, it's. Uh, there's a making of doc on that Blu-ray too. <laughs> I do a lot of those. So do you ever want to just give up? Because I'm telling you, after some of them documentaries, I wanted to give up. But then it also it also gave me a much greater appreciation for movies and and even appreciating the ones that I consider to be kind of terrible that I still own because yeah. people are not doing this for no reason. That's that's no. too hard work. For, to not appreciate something about these movies. I mean, I, there are have definitely been times in my life where I life knocked me back either artistically or whatever else. And I went, oh man, I should just throw in the towel and just, just like, you know, just work, just do a day job or whatever it happens to be. And like, you know, live a life, go home, watch movies, hang out, you know, build a family and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> But I, uh, I've never been able to, to stop myself from wanting to do the next thing. Uh, I, somehow it's just ingrained into me that I, I absolutely, you know, this feels like my calling. It feels like the thing I want to do. And the, and the fact that there's thousands of other people in, in the world trying to do the same thing to varying degrees, uh, it can be daunting too, because it's like, you know, there's only so much space for, every, for everything. Like there, there's, you know, if there's 10,000 people doing something, only like, a, you know, a few hundred of them are ever going to do anything of note. Uh, but I don't think that's why filmmakers need to be doing things. I think they, you need to have this drive to just create and everything else is kind of gravy, right? You, right. You, you, need to, you need to make a living in some way, shape or form. And whether you're doing that directly from your work, which is incredibly difficult, unless you're like, actually like a high-end uh, director or producer who's like, consistently working and not getting screwed over and like always has a new job you can live off that but for most people they also have to maintain some kind of career in tandem with that so you know i run a post-production production business where you know i do blu-ray and dvd authoring and uh and trailer editing and captions and all that sort of thing and that's what really puts the food on the table so because i have that to support myself 
I, I'm able to kind of like spend spare time and, and you know, time when I, I don't need to fulfill clients' needs to, uh, which makes me sound like a gigolo in, in some ways. Maybe. <laughs> but but uh, it gives me time because I'm supported in that way. It gives me time to focus on my own stuff without needing to go constantly chase down development budget and stuff like that. Um, I, the one challenge there, of course, is because I can't focus 100% of my time on my career, like, you know, some Gary Vee bullshit. I, uh, I can't like, um, I can't like, uh, you know, just be constantly on, on at all times. Like uh, the past few years, you know, with the pandemic hitting and all that sort of thing, we, we had all these projects like Mark of Cain. We were in the middle of casting. We had $5 million raised. We were ready to go. And then the pandemic hit and everything kind of just gradually fell apart. You know, mm. oh, okay, you know, Australia, everybody's shooting there right now, which because there was no, in the early part of the pandemic, there was no, barely any COVID there. So all the, basically that's where all the Hollywood stuff went. So trying to get big name Australian actors at a lower budget was impossible for the first couple of years of the pandemic because they were all working on Marvel stuff and Netflix stuff and everybody was booked to the high heavens. All the crew in Australia was booked, which is where we were supposed to shoot that. Everything was booked. And then Australia loosened all their pandemic restrictions and got hammered by COVID really hard. And it, it suddenly became uh, not possible to shoot there for completely different reasons. And our, uh, one of our major partners on the film who had been championing the project forever and put up a bunch of the money left the company he was at to go to another company. And now his replacement doesn't know us from Adam. So it's not like, it's, it's like, you know, we've already, a door we've already opened is now just sort of like, you know, closed with just a crack open. And, mm -hmm. and we're like, hey, can we talk? And it's, it, we're not a priority anymore. And it's just all these things kind of steamroll. And, and so I've been working on other stuff and a lot of the past few years, even though I've actively, like I've written a new horror film uh, over the last the last little while, I've got the They Came From Within documentary on the history of Canadian horror that I've been gradually putting together. Um, I've been doing mostly a lot of client work the past few years. Like I've done work and I've sort of done the side trip into writing an album for fun. But mostly I've been doing, like I do a lot of the authoring for half a dozen uh, OCN vinegar syndrome labels. I do a lot of authoring for a lot of other companies. Um, probably some stuff you guys have in your shelves I've worked on. I've probably done four or 500 releases at this point since oh, wow. 2008, 2009. Um, and, uh, you know, I've cut trailers and uh, that's allowed me to move into a nicer home. And uh, just like, you know, by focusing on that, and I've been able to sort of like put more foundation into myself the past few years, but it means my output has been, has slowed down because I'm, I'm also still of the mindset that like, unless the production is, is safely run, uh, I don't want to be liable for somebody or somebody's um, somebody to go out and infect their family or whatever. And mm -hmm. like, I don't, I don't need body count, literal, actual body count in my productions. Like I, right. it's so it, it is. And be, because uh, things have changed so much over the last year and, and a lot of productions aren't doing anything anymore. It, it has made it difficult for me to go, okay, so I've been approached a couple of times to direct stuff that already had money and I, I'd ask them, so what are you doing for COVID protocols? Is there, what is, what is preventing the shoot from getting shut down because, you know, COVID, and it, there, there's nobody, there are definitely productions doing something, but on the indie level, a lot of them just are throwing caution to the wind. And I, I can't, I, I don't want people who I'm responsible for uh, to be under that situation because morally it's wrong and uh and financially it, it can really fuck things up too and it like a like a big studio production if they have to shut down because of covid well okay they've got enough money they're gonna hammer hemorrhage money but they can recover uh, mm -hmm. an indie film where like it's a half a million bucks or something or a little less than that if you've got to shut down all of a sudden for like a week that's that might not be recoverable and then you're on the hook for the money so it's like I don't know. Just trying to navigate this new sort of world of production is, is has been difficult for me too. So I'm. Uh, if anything made me want to give up, it it would just be the actual realities of the world and not the realities of me throwing in the towel because I don't want to make films anymore. It would be like, oh, the world's on fire and nobody's watching movies and we're out of power. Okay, I guess I'm not going to make movies anymore. Right. <laughs> like that, that would be that would be the barrier. You know, the 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 actual like, oh, okay, like everybody's dead. All right, well, who the fuck's around to watch it? I guess I won't <laughs> you know, right? Right. <laughs> that's 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 kind of what would get in my, in my way, I think. <laughs> well, we can understand it somewhat. 
because Chris here, he's a writer, but can't tell us what, what it is. And Carlos is on mm-hmm. his second his second short. Oh, so do cool. you have any any wisdom to impart? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, okay, so on the short film side of things, uh, if you're looking at festival play and you're looking at getting like, the hitting as, as being able to accept it to as many festivals as possible, the great thing about shorts is you don't have to be uh, long. And I, I say this as somebody who rambles for every answer to every question in this, in this podcast, but um, <laughs> being, being concise and direct and, and especially under 10 minutes is going to help you more than like making a 30 minute short film and expecting anyone to play it. And it's not that it won't play, but the majority of festivals, they, they'll do a short film program where they want to put 10 shorts out in 90 minutes or, you know, 12 shorts out in 100 minutes or whatever. If they have to choose between three really cool 10 minute shorts and one kind of all right or even really cool 30 minute shorts, they're going to opt for the three shorts, the three shorter shorts as opposed to the longer ones. So try always try and keep your running times tight. And that's something, even advice that I wish I could have given myself when I was younger, because almost all of my short films, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, I feel like I, I now, given what I know now, I'd probably cut a couple minutes out of each one of them. Just, and it seems weird to say, oh, two minutes, nobody cares about two minutes. But in the short film world, it really does matter, especially because a lot of festivals will also program shorts in front of feature films. And the people buy tickets for the feature, they're not buying tickets for the short usually. So if the short is longer than 10 minutes, if it's 15, 20 minutes, it's, it's harder for a festival to choose to play that in front of the feature because A, the people didn't pay for the short film, it's a bonus, and B, they want to get to the feature longer and, and there's already going to be like an intro speech and trailers and whatever else that the festival's doing and they don't want their program to be two and a half hours long because they need to play another film after it. So it's really smart with shorts to make sure your short is 10 minutes or less. And also because people have no attention span. So if you want something that's a calling card, like uh, Fede Alvarez, he made uh, Panic um, Panic Attack, was it called? The, he, he made this four minute long, it was like four minutes long. It was a, a, sh- a short film. And that's what caught him the eye of Sam Raimi. It, it was like big CG robots attacking the city or something. I think it was called Panic Attack. Anyway, that kind of calling card is great because it's... I, even though Quibi failed, it's Quibi link. Like it's it's the kind of thing somebody can watch and uh, like a YouTube video or, or whatever else, and, and you go, oh, holy shit! Okay, yeah, this tells me exactly who this person is, what they're capable of. Let's have get them on the phone, or let's email them and contact them, or whatever else. If it's longer and you haven't wowed somebody in the first four minutes, and it, it, it I'm not saying don't make those shorts because you should never limit yourself creatively. If you got to make something, just make it. But if you're trying to use it as a calling card, you got to grab people and you got to do it quick or else you're, you know, you're just spinning your wheels. If, if the goal of the short is to build your career, right? Because, you know, and you can make some money off shorts too, although there's, it's usually through like, you know, the big YouTube channels like Omeletto and whatever it happens to be. Uh, I would say that if anybody's offering to take your short in a distribution deal, don't give anybody exclusive rights. Always go with non-exclusive. Um, and in particular, make sure that uh, they're not going to put it into YouTube's copyright algorithm. You put that right in your contract so that you don't get uh, your, hand, your hand, hands cuffed trying to use it elsewhere later down the line. Because, you know, you never know if the person you signed to is going to go under and then your short's just gone or your feature's just gone. So you just got to be you got to be careful with that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. As for writing advice, I mean, I don't really have any. Uh, I, because everybody's different and everybody's approach to the art, the art form is different. But I would say that in terms of general advice, you know, just because somebody says they don't like your stuff doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Everybody's opinion is just opinion. Um, but if like 40 people don't respond to your thing, maybe there's something in there that you need to, you need to adjust or like, you know, the more, if, if never go from one opinion, because like I've had, especially in, I put out actual films, right? Like movies that, you know, a lot of people have reviewed, you know, if I gave up because 10% of, or 30% of reviews were just trashing whatever I did, uh, or if I took all that to heart without like, like critically evaluating, okay, maybe they have a point here, maybe they have a point here, um, without like really taking the good and the bad and trying to weigh it and trying to pull something constructive out of it, as opposed to just going like, you know, either dismissing the bad and accepting the good or dismissing the good and accepting the, only the bad, it, that would really fuck up my psyche, I think. 
and really, really affect the writing because I'd be trying to write for everyone else who's who criticizes as opposed to write for myself and write the things that I think are good. And ultimately, if you're writing from your heart and you're writing stuff that is um, is something you want to see, chances are there's people out there who are going to want to see that as well. Uh, and and you know you it, it really is about finding your audience and finding the 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 like uh, the like-minded people, but also writing in a way that is I don't want to say broad, but is is understandable enough that maybe you'll win some more new people over to your side at the end of the day. And that's all on the indie level. If you're writing in like a writer's room or you're writing for a studio or something, that's a whole other conversation. I've, I've certainly dabbled in that world a fair bit. And uh, um, <laughs> it, it, it has never been pleasant for me. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, that's, a, maybe that's a problem for me where I'm, I'm just not able to um, onboard opinions and advice and, and criticism of work to the degree that... Um, I understand where they're coming from with a particular note. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that I, I can't take notes and I can't take criticism because I've, I've really had to learn how to do that over, over time. What I mean is that if you're trying to write because somebody has tasked you, okay, well, this is a remake of this. It needs this element, this element, this element, and this element. And you go right from the get-go, you, you realize, I don't know if those elements are gonna work together. You can't really verbalize that early on. Okay, I'll take the job and I'll work on it. And then you deliver something and they go, where's this element and this element? And you go, well, I didn't see how it organically worked with the story, but they want those elements. Um, I, I have trouble reverse engineering something on that level where, where it's uh -huh. like people come to you and they want, okay, it's got to hit all these marks. And you're like, uh, okay, but it's not a very good story. It's just like a checklist, right? So what, uh, anyway, I guess the point uh -huh. is depending on how, what, what direction you want to work in, you have to decide how much you want to let go of the reins over like, are you just the guy typing the keys or are you actually thinking and then typing, typing the keys? Like, or are you just filtering someone else's ideas and trying to like warp them into some kind of Frankenstein monster? I just, I, uh -huh. I have trouble with that way of working. And I, 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 I hit against walls every single time trying to do that way. But lots and lots of professional writers absolutely, you know, have to work that way. That's, you know, yeah. that's just the way it is. Like, there's no that is the business like once you get to a certain level and if that's the level you're working at that's that's what it is right like you you have to consensus right you have to you know you have to let go you have to kill your darlings because there's more influence on the writing than just like taste i don't mm -hmm. know that that was a roundabout answer but uh hope, hope it was something yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's it made sense and i mean it... Right now, I'm lucky enough to be working with a very, very collaborative and very open um, writing partner in the the projects that we're working on. So it's right. it's definitely helping currently. Um, I'm a little concerned as to where it's going to go once we uh, once we hit those next levels. But that's you know at this point we're we're wait and see, depending on <laughs> I guess on how much creative control we're allowed to maintain. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a trade-off always, right? So if somebody comes to you and says, oh, we'll absolutely make, this has happened to me a few times too. We're going to make this movie, but we want these specific changes. You have to weigh, okay, is it worth making the movie poorly because they're putting big money up or should I just hold hold out and like, and sometimes I've just had problem projects that just never went anywhere because I was like, well, there was one in particular. I wrote this movie called Tripped years ago. And uh, I wrote it with Kevin and it was kind of about us. Uh, I mean, the characters were archetypes, but we put a lot of our own sort of like creative process into the two lead characters. It was basically like Pineapple Express meets The Thing. It was, you know, it just, this was written in like mid early 2000s. So it was kind of, I would have changed a lot. And now the way I am now, I would change a lot of that script because it was very, very, very much a dude girl kind of story. But very, I thought very fun horror movie, right? So what had happened was this company really, really liked the movie uh, and they wanted to make it and they were going to put 1.5 million down. But then once we started talking, there was a few things that were clear. One of them was they really liked the idea and the concept. They wanted to remove all of the heart and character from it and take the core idea of it and, and task it to another director and another other creative team after they signed it. And then I, we started talking more and it's like, okay, well, do I get to stay on as a creative producer? And they're like, no, no, we'll take the script and the idea and we'll do it. And so I, I just walked away from it. And um. yeah, the movie probably would have got made, but I, I, it just felt insulting for me to be the one to come up with everything. And then they go, we want everything but you. And I went, yeah, 
yeah okay and that was that was an early taste of like oh so that's how it is okay mm -hmm. then. <laughs> not saying that happened every time but like <laughs> you know that that happened a lot uh, you know there were there were companies that would like yeah you can do a page one rewrite of the script that we've been trying to crack for four years uh, and we've never been able to make happen and we've been through eight, eight writers absolutely so i'll do it and then i'll present it and they say okay well we're going to go back to the original script and just change these few little then the movie gets made and you're like what the fuck like, yeah. you know, like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that being said, I, I, it's not like I can sit here and go, you know, everything I do is good because I'm sure, you know, to, it, it's all opinion, right? So right. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've put out my fair share of shit. Like, I'm sure, like, and it's not even that. It, you're, you're the place you're in in your life when you're writing something, you know, whatever distractions you have when in your actual life, all that stuff contributes to the writing process. So. Mm -hmm and de tight deadlines and all that sort of thing i i'm i'm sure that it's not all on on the other person i know that and i can accept that you know that that like some things just weren't meant to be and it, whether it was their fault or my fault or it, it just means that some things weren't meant to be i can't look at it in any other way than that because you start self-analyzing too much and you start doubting a lot and i'm not saying you shouldn't self-analyze and try and improve yourself and trying to trying to grow as a person what i'm saying is if you only look at the negative outcomes and then blame yourself for those negative outcomes it's a self-fulfilling process process or self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy to some degree yeah but and i mean like you said anything anything artistic is subjective you know yes. uh, one guy's shit is another guy's treasure so oh, I mean, you know it's it's hard yeah you just got to look at online reviews and realize that if you put you know 10 people in a room you're going to get 10 different opinions so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. who cares ultimately yeah. who cares right yeah right exactly i mean the goal is to get your project out there get it in front of as many eyes as you can and whether people like it or hate it that's on them it's not on you as the as the artist you know and as the as the person who who put out the content and the material because it is it's entirely subjective and oh, yeah. i mean i've put out stuff that um like uh, written works that you know when i put it out i think oh my god this is fantastic and mm. i look at it again a year later and i think oh this is a piece of shit like what was i thinking <laughs> well, that's, that's you know hindsight, so it happens yeah. hindsight's always 2020 20, right and yeah and exactly you, like you change who you are as a person as time goes on so when you look back at your past stuff you go oh i wouldn't do that that way now but mm -hmm. then you, you got to really look at like well but who was i then so yeah. it's it, yeah it is what it is right I, I think the only thing you can do is just try and like reflect and understand yourself better and that'll hopefully drive you to to become a better person and then by being a better person you create better work mm -hmm. but <laughs> you know who knows that it feels kind of like woo woo to say but i i think it's true i i think you know it's important it's really important to just kind of like you got to be it's like any, a relationship in a way your relationship to your your career or your passion is is, is like any other relationship right like you you got to be ha happy with yourself and, and, yeah. you know, grow, grow as a person. And, and it, like, you love yourself before you can love your career, before you can love your partner or whatever. Mm -hmm. that happens to be. Yeah, no, definitely agree. And it's, it, you have to be when looking back at, at older projects and older work, it, you're absolutely right. You have to look at it as, you know, this may not be where I am now in life, but this mm -hmm. is where I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. Um, the, the biggest problem I have is when I look back at my older work, I always want to redo it based on how I look at the world now. Yeah. So there's I, my, yep. Yep. My very first feature was this thing called strata that I shot in high school. And I still think there's a seed of a really good idea there that I would, I would be able to make a pretty, pretty cool sort of anthology, but not really an anthology uh, feature out of, and I just, uh, I, I, uh, that part of me wants to do that and part of me thinks well why am i dealing with why am i think, still thinking about an idea i came up with in high school you know mm -hmm. like, it, yeah my feeling towards that and it's just i guess it's just how i cope with it is if it's still on my mind this many years later there's mm -hmm. obviously unfinished business there for me and there's something to that that is still wanting to be told or wanting to be said or wanting to be act added so i i mean as much as i don't always go back and and retouch older things mm. every once in a while that idea comes up and i will and i'll go back and i'll relook and i'll you know re-edit re and change a couple words here and there and then think okay 
now here's the you know here's the here's the 2023 version of something I wrote when I was 17. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's kind of cool to think about too. I, I I've had so many things I've wanted to do over the years that I didn't pull the trigger on, and what my one of my biggest regrets was. What I wanted to do was get the best camera tech at the time in the early 2000s when I'd just come out of film school and shoot like half of a conversation and then wait 20 years and with whatever tech matched that, shoot the other half of the conversation. So it would be my 40 year old self talking to my 20 year old self and wait another 20 years mm. and shoot a third point with the 60 year old self talking to the 40 year old self talking to the 20 year old self. And because I didn't actually pull the trigger on the 20 year old self, I, I feel like it would just be like pointless now. So, but, but back then I was like super keen on the idea. I started writing and, I, and then I had a certain point, I went, oh, geez, I don't know where I'm going to be in 20 years. And I like, I just kind of like started projecting into the future and went, is this going to, is anybody going to give a shit? And mm -hmm. then I think a few years into it, somebody did a, it was like a, maybe it wasn't a Vine, but it was an early internet video. And what it was, was somebody was taking a photo of themselves every day from when they were like, 12 or something until they were in their mid 20s and I went well that's it's not the same but it's it's close and anyway I just kind of gave up on the idea and because it was so tied into the concept of like actual time passing because I let time pass the idea naturally went away mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah but I, yeah, I do regret that I didn't actually do it because I, I feel like you know there'd be there's something I did a similar short called Balance where I, I was like at a, a crossroads in my life and I, I was myself bitching myself out for my for a lot of problems. And um, and it was like a, a way I could do that in a in a current period. But I really kind of regret I didn't do that because I feel like even though it's a limited audience kind of film, it would have been something really cool to have mm, in film. It's a very unique but, concept for sure. Yeah. And I just I just never did it. Someone else can have that idea. If they're listening to this podcast, <laughs> do it now. You could live to be a hundred years old, and then you'll be like, "Why didn't I do that when I was?" <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that, but uh, maybe I'll make it sixty. So maybe I should shoot half of it now and see what happens at sixty. But uh, <laughs> anyway, then just put it on a shelf and see what happens. Yeah, yeah it, might be, uh, it doesn't hurt. You know, I have the gear. I, I'm, I've got all this time to myself. I just need a blackout so that I, I can like, you know, eh, I think I could do it. I, not a, like a actual power goes off. I mean, I would need a neutral background so that I mm -hmm. don't, you know, so that I, I can match it. Uh, right. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, maybe I will. <laughs> but, yeah, you uh, should. Remind us what we have to look forward to in the future, because I want to see it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The heat death of the earth. Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is, uh, all right. So I've got, they, come, they came from within, which is an adaption of uh, Callum Batsnall's, uh, I might be mispronouncing his last name, a very popular book on uh, Canadian horror history. I'm, I'm working on the documentary version of that. Okay. I don't know yet if it's a single feature film or if it's like a two-parter, uh, kind of like um, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched is like a four hour long documentary. There's so much subject matter that I, I, I don't know if I can distill it into like a 90 to 100 minute film or if it needs to be this bigger compendium kind of deal. Um, mm -hmm. There's a Clapboard Jungle TV series I've been gradually working on editing that was supposed to come out in 2022, but I've hit a wall with it because the business changed so much. And now a lot of the interviews I've been using are out of date and don't apply to a lot of what's going on with the business right now. So my decision-making process is either I let it die, which I don't want to, or I go out and shoot a whole bunch of new material. And, and the reason I haven't put, been able to put a ton of time into that, but it is coming, is because I've been spending a lot of my time dealing with my clients and right. uh, and also just because it's not a paid thing. I'm, I, it's another thing I'd be doing, you know, just when I have time, which right. is is fleeting at this point. But, hmm. you know, I, I will I will get it out. I'm, I'm just really hemming hawing on the structure of the thing. Uh, the initial structure I had when I started in 2019, putting it together with Kevin Burke, the editor, and myself was, I don't think it works anymore. Because mm. I, I, I just, it, it, everything is so different in the last three years that I, I, I really, I think I, re, re, I need to go from like a, like a bird's eye view on this one, like see the forest through the trees and really hammer in, okay, what is this actually going to be? And then it'll come out. Uh, but I'm looking forward to getting that out. Uh, okay. I have this other project called Feed the Dark that I'm hoping to get traction with. I'm not going to explain what it is, but Feed it's the a dark. Really, 
yeah, it's a really it's a really fun creature feature. I love little monsters. Like I grew up watching, like you know, you you show me a critter or a ghoulie or you know a, a fucking gremlin or hobgoblin or whatever, and I'm all over it. So, so it's it's sort of my approach to like a really scary version of a little monsters movie. Um, awesome. Cool. But we'll see. We'll see if it gets made. And the Mark of Cain, we're still trying to get going, but again, Mark we've hit Kane. some hurdles. Yeah, we've hit some. That's based on a novel called Kane by a, an author named Michael Prescott. It's a really hard-edged. I don't want to call it a slasher movie because the guy, the killer, isn't a slasher. He's much more tactical, and he's a slasher. If the slasher, uh, you know, set out to kill thirty people in one night and uh, did it very militar militaristically. So it's okay. it's a lot more grounded than that, and it's sort of a western hybrid too. But it's 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 absolutely a horror film. Um, but other than that, like I've got drawers and drawers of scripts. It's just a matter of you know one of them hitting at the right time during the right pitch, and or somebody approaching me with the right project. Because like I've said, I've turned down a few things over the last few years that I just just weren't good fits. I didn't I wasn't feeling the the project or the material, and nothing against them. I'm sure they're going to be interesting movies. I just at this stage, I'm in my you know early 40s. Even though I'm not like you know I'm not Spielberg, <laughs> I'm just right. some asshole in Toronto. But <laughs> uh, you know, to take uh, to take uh, on a feature film is is a multi-year investment of your time of your of your life. And if it's if it's a story that I'm not, I don't feel if I'm not uh, it doesn't matter the amount of money. It, it's right. not mm -hmm. I, I'm not I'm not wired that way. I can't I I can't just it's one thing doing client work that's a different thing, but mm -hmm. um, I can't just grit my teeth and plug my nose and go. Well, at least the payday is good. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm. That's not the type of filmmaker I am. I. Yeah. <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> I'm sure there are probably people listening who's like, "But all this stuff sucks. What is he talking about?" But, <laughs> but, but the, at least to me, I can't just like do something that isn't. I. It, I, I just don't feel that. I just like. Yeah. I don't have passion for. Yeah. Well, so, I think. I think fans know they're just mm -hmm. doing it just to get the payday. We can tell. We can tell when somebody cares about it too. So yeah, it makes a difference. You can always tell, right? The, right? the the universe is littered with, you know, cheapy horror movies that people made just because they think that they're going to get laid. Or, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm phrasing that really crassly, but what I mean is like, you know, you go on Tubi and you throw a, throw a dart and you're going to find something that somebody farted out without thinking about it because they, they heard somewhere that a horror movie is going to make them money, but they don't actually give a shit. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Like there's tons of those. And mm -hmm. they, hey, they got it out there. Great. But like there's no fulfillment in that sort of thing, at least not to me. Wonderfully informative and, and very enjoyable. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, and once again, I apologize that I, I was late. <laughs> no, that's okay. We appreciate yeah. you making time at all. Mm -hmm. Like really, it was yeah. a pleasure. Great. Have a have a good one and good luck with the podcast. I'll give it a listen. This is the number one place for macabre cults, classics, and horrors. For synopsis, reviews, and news, go to macabre.com. Thank you for listening. Signing out until the next one.